at the foot of the cross a monthly podcast from the catholic bishops conference of england and wales Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to At the Foot of the Cross, our monthly podcast from the Catholic Bishops Conference of England and Wales. Well, the Secretariat, to be a little bit more accurate. Our regular studio guest, the Welsh Oracle, is Canon Christopher Thomas. Canon Chris, how are you? Good morning, James. Nice to see you. That, that was a surprise, wasn't it? A little surprise description. Absolutely. I, I, I wouldn't regard myself as a Welsh oracle. <laughs> <laughs> now, you've been in the Holy Land, though, haven't you? I have. I Since had ten, ten fantastic days in the Holy Land with the Knights of the Holy Sepulchre, which I'm a member of. We started up in Galilee and uh, worked our way down to Bethlehem and then to finally ended up in Jerusalem. The purpose of our visit was to speak to what we love to call the living stones of the Holy Land, which are the people. Yes, the important and ones. That's right. And uh, whilst visiting the fixed stones in terms of the the holy places, the most important visits that we made were to uh, parishes and to schools. We went to the seminary in Betjala to um, support the seminarians there in their formation as priests. And we went to the Patriarchate as well. I was very blessed to receive my pilgrim shell as an official pilgrim of the Holy Land. But it was a very spiritual and important visit. Very important to get the feel for, you know, the people who live there in such difficult circumstances, circumstances that often we forget and can take for granted. Yeah, I must admit, I think probably the most moving part of of, of many moving aspects when I was in uh, Jerusalem was when we went into the West Bank, uh, we went to Jifna. And it was the people, it yeah. was the people that have been there for a very long time, experienced many hardships, to be fair. Uh, but they still have a tremendously positive spirit, yeah. which yeah. sort of surprises me in a way. We went to uh, the uh, Patriarchate School in Reina, which is halfway between Cana and uh, Nazareth. And the young people there were just absolutely inspirational. They were, yeah. were marvellous. And to see their, their vim and their vigour in an expanding school, it's an area that's growing. And the parish priest there, who we spent a long time talking with, you know, was saying that uh, they would love to take more children, but there's a lot of financial pressure on people to go to the schools there. So part of our role as uh, Knights of the Holy Sepulchre is to support financially the work of the Patriarchate. Yeah. So we will continue our, our financial support as well as our spiritual support and also the support of being present to them in the years to come. Did you still detect a sense of hope amongst the people or, or is it... Yes, yeah? very, very much so. And... The joy that they have, their hospitality and their welcome was overwhelming in many respects. We went to the parish of uh, St. Joseph in Nazareth uh, for Sunday Mass and and the welcome and the reception that we received there from uh, the people was absolutely fantastic. You know, they said, we we need you to come. We need people to come to the Holy Land so that you you recognise that we're here. You know, the Christians are a very small minority now and we need to ensure that we support them through our prayer, but also with our presence as well. I suppose if I were to pick one bit, which was important for me, was uh, we were a very small pilgrim group. We had mass in the tomb at the Holy Sepulchre within the the edicule. And as I was celebrating mass there, because I was the only priest on the pilgrimage, I really did pray for all the people that we had met and all the communities that we had met, that the the joy of the resurrection would touch all of their hearts. And even in the depths of difficulty and I'm not going to say despair because they don't despair. They are so filled with hope that that hope and joy that comes from the risen Christ will be their driver to go out from themselves and to be a force for good in the world. Yeah, very well said. Yes, I was I was seriously moved when I went to the Holy Land. Now, do you know where I've been? I think you've been to Nottingham, my I home have diocese. Your home diocese to see your home bishop. Indeed. 
uh, Bishop Patrick McKinney, who's actually our, our lead with regard to interreligious dialogue. Uh, fascinating, I must say. Now, we also recorded a piece with him, which, which you may not know, and he just described exactly what interreligious dialogue is, what it's about, why it's important to the church. So what we'll do is we'll play that out a little bit later in this podcast. But yes, I was, I was very pleased to be in your home diocese. Nice diocese, nice oh, city. Uh, absolutely, yes. I, I was very blessed. I was ordained twice in Nottingham Cathedral as a deacon and as a priest, and I spent my first two years as an assistant priest there, so, uh, so it has a deep place in my heart. So, yeah, uh, absolutely. And I saw a sign for Ye Oldie Trip to Jerusalem, and yes. I thought, well, this is very religious, but what is it? It's a pub. It's, it's, a pub. it's the oldest pub in England. It's the oldest pub in England, <laughs> indeed. 1189 AD, I believe. That's enough of that. Okay. <laughs> um, now, we're going to talk about the Jubilee, the Holy Year in 2025. We touched upon it in our last podcast mm-hmm. and we talked about the two year lead up to it. Mm-hmm. And in 2023, we're going to start, aren't we, by looking at those sort of great constitutions of the Second Vatican Council. That's correct. Now, jump in and correct me if I'm wrong. We've got Sacrosanctum Concilium mm-hmm. on the Sacred Liturgy. Lumen Gentium on the constitution of the church, De Verbum on divine revelation, and Gaudium et Spes on the church in the modern world of the 60s. The modern world, the modern world no less. So I asked you or challenged you to give us something a little bit accessible, a bit of an entry level. Let's talk about those four constitutions. How can we sort of just gently start our formation on these documents? Okay. well, the first thing to to think about, people talk about Vatican II. Well, why, why is it called Vatican II? Because there was a Vatican I as well. So Vatican I took place in 1870, but it was a um, a curtailed council because of the political situation in Italy at the time. So Pope St. John XXIII called the Second Vatican Council. It was a bit of a surprise to people. He called a synod for the Diocese of Rome. He then went on to call the Second Vatican Council for the Universal Church. And there was a preparatory period which took place in the early part of the 60s, 1960 to 1962. And just as we've done with the Synod at this time that we're going through at the moment, the bishops of the world were asked to send in what were their concerns that they wanted to see discussed. And the council actually sat from 1962 to 1965. During that time, there was a change of pontificate because Pope St. John XXIII died and Pope St. Paul VI was elected. And During that time, there were 16 documents finally published of uh, the Second Vatican Council. The four constitutions, as you said, Sacrosanctum Concilium, Lumen Gentium, Dei Verbum and Gaudium et Spes, are regarded as the main documents of the council, although all of them have had a deep impact on the life of the church today. So talking about Bishop McKinney and his work in interreligious dialogue, that all comes from the document Nostra Aetate, which is a document that talks about the three Abrahamic faiths and how the church is dialogical in her very nature. There's undiscovered riches in the Second Vatican Council. So what I'm going to do today is just very quickly and gently, because you could spend years studying these documents. <laughs> a just, slightly unfair challenge I've given you, actually. But, you know, <laughs> I'm just, sure you'll do it well. Just to go through the, these these four documents and, and their importance. So the first thing to say is, is that their titles come from the first few words of the document itself. So Sacrosanctum Concilium actually has nothing odd about the liturgy. It means the Sacred Council. Yeah. But Sacrosanctum Concilium was the first of the constitutions to be published. It was published on the 4th of December, 1963. And... It was talking about the liturgical renewal and the life of the church. Its main thrust was to 
express, first of all, that the, the liturgy is both the source and the summit of the church's life, that, that we draw our energy from the liturgy and it's where we order all of our ecclesial life towards. Within that liturgical context, obviously the, the sacrifice of the Mass is the most central part because within it we actually offer back to the Lord that which he offered himself on the cross of Calvary. So what's in Sacrosanctum Concilium? Well, the first thing I'd like to focus on is the Bible. The role of the Bible in the liturgy was really put in, into the fore of the Constitution. I can remember as a parish priest ensuring that every parishioner in my parish had a Bible in terms of family homes, because when I used to go and visit, I'd often try and look for it to see if I could find it. The reason was, is, is as, as somebody once said to me, Catholics don't have Bibles, they have missals. And the missal is a very, obviously, there's, there's scripture in the missal in the, in the order of mass, but the Bible is the inspired word of God. And so Sacrosanctum Concilium wanted was a greater access to the sacred scriptures. It then went on to talk about the liturgical texts that we live by in terms of our formal liturgy of the church and how they should be translated into a language that people uh, would understand. Because, of course, before the Second Vatican Council, the whole of our liturgy was in Latin. And there was a sense of enculturation of those liturgical texts as well. The third focus, I would say, would be on the participation of all of the baptised in the liturgical life of the church. It was often seen that the priest did everything at Mass, as it were, whereas after the Second Vatican Council, there was a renewal of the ministry by virtue of our common priesthood as the baptised. There was a renewal of how we could all participate in the ministerial life of the Church. And this has been taken a little bit further now by our Holy Father, Pope Francis, with the opening up of the ministry of lector and acolyte and catechist in the document Antico Ministerium, where he's asking people to be formed and to take up these significant roles, formally constituted ministries within the Church as well. And then finally, there was the sort of revitalization of church life. The liturgy, because it is our source and summit, is obviously the key to evangelization. And in fact, going back to my time in the parish, a lot of people came to, to the RCIA, to the Growing in Faith Together process, mainly because of the liturgical life, that they experienced something when they came that was other, but it was something special. And they wanted to learn more about what the church understood itself to be. So those are some very, very broad brushstrokes about Sacrosanctum Concilium. We are still working these things out, you know, and, uh, you know, with Antiquum Ministerium, you know, this is a recent document of the, of the Holy Father. There are more opportunities to come from it as well. Plus, in England and Wales, with respect to the routing of the Bible, we, we, we are working on our new lectionary that is going to be published within the next few years. So that's another thing that's so important for us, to make Scripture open and available to people. Yeah. So, Lumen Gentium. Well, Lumen Gentium is about the church, the church herself. And I suppose you could put it this way. It's a question, and it tries to explain the answer to the question. How does the divine institution of the church, constituted by God, manifest itself in the world? Because obviously it becomes also a human constitution when it becomes touched in people's lives. So the first thing about Lumen Gentium, is that it recognises the fact that we are all part of the people of God and we are consecrated in our baptism to be missioners in the world, to take that which we have received ourselves and to hand it on to others. 
from within the people of God, people are drawn out for specific ministry. So the second part of Lumen Gentium talks about the hierarchical constitution of the church, and it focuses very much on the bishop, the bishop who is the one who has the fullness of the priesthood and has three um, particular tasks to teach, to sanctify, and to govern within the particular church in which the bishop works. And then from the bishop, it then moves to the laity and the understanding of the tasks of the laity and also their relationship to the hierarchy and how there is a sense of, and I use this phrase myself, a, a mutuality of mission. We each have our particular role to play, but we have to play it together in order for the church to be effective as an evangelizing entity within our world. It then goes on to what I think is probably the most important chapter, which is the universal call to holiness. This, I think, was a real novelty in the Second Vatican Council and particularly in, in Lumen Gentium. Not because holiness wasn't important before, but that holiness was often seen as the purview of religious or priests or bishops or those who had been set apart, consecrated for duty, as it were. Yeah. What the Second Vatican Council says is that there is a universal call for every individual to grow in holiness. But not only that, because of that, the church grows in holiness. And if the church grows in holiness and it's within the world, the world then grows in holiness. And I think that that chapter five is so important because it's the work of grace in the world, in people's hearts, in the institution of the church, and then the church in the world. That's something that we really still need to, to get a lot of grip on. So if you were going to give a bit of homework, chapter five of Lumen, Lumen Gentium, Gentium yeah, would be the, the one. The universal call to holiness, yeah. Very good. Then there's a, a, a section on religious and the way in which religious live out their particular vocation according to the evangelical councils of poverty, obedience and chastity. And then the last two sections are about the pilgrim church on earth in relation to the church in heaven. Now, if we were to go to before the Second Vatican Council, people would regard, would have heard of things like the church militant, the church suffering and the church triumphant. And that's basically a revisioning of those things. The church here on earth, the church in preparation for its glory, i.e. the church in purgatory, and then the church triumphant, dwelling in that beatific vision and how the three are connected and particularly through the communion of saints. And then at the end, and this is very important. In the Second Vatican Council, there was no separate document on Our Lady. And this was because Our Lady was always seen as the one who points towards her son. And so Our Lady is the first fruits of the church. In her assumption, she becomes the type of where we are all to be. And so the chapter on Our Lady is the last chapter and within it, we have a beautiful exposition on how her discipleship and how she always points towards her son, our Lord Jesus Christ, is so important. And that's why she has a particular place of veneration within the life of the church. Obviously, there's been a development of the magisterial teaching on Our Lady, but the fact that there was no separate document on Our Lady, but she was included within the document on the hierarchical nature of the church, on the, on the very nature of the church, I think is very, very important. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you're doing a grand job of this, I have to say. We're getting through it. We can deepen our understanding as the time goes on. Um, Dave Verbum. Dave Verbum is on divine revelation. So this talks about how God has revealed himself in the world and how that revelation has been received and transmitted within the heart of the church. The first part of it is on the person of Jesus himself as the source of all revelation. God has revealed himself through his son in the most perfect way. 
if you go back to St. John's Gospel, you know, there's that wonderful phrase, I call you friends because I have made known to you everything I have learned from my Father. So the very heart of the Father has been revealed in the person of Jesus. And then it goes on to talk about how what has been revealed is then handed on. And this is where we have the wonderful concept of tradition. And that's tradition with a very capital T. It's not about customs. It's about the very tradition of the church. And at the heart of tradition, to go back to the first constitution, is how the church prays, how the church expresses itself in the liturgical forum. What we have is the lex orandi, lex credendi, lex vivendi. Well, the law of how we pray becomes the law of what we believe, which becomes the law of how we live. I always think at the baptism of children, there's that wonderful moment where you light a small candle from the paschal candle. Yeah. The paschal candle being the symbol of the risen Christ brought into a dark church. And that wonderful phrase from the exalted, a flame divided yet undimmed, which illuminates the church. We've all been there where that single flame suddenly illuminates a whole dark building. I was in Westminster Cathedral last Easter and suddenly the place became alight with thousands of little candles lit from that singular flame. But the lighting of, of the small candle from the Paschal candle, which symbolises the risen Christ, is the handing on of the faith to parents and godparents with the words, receive the light of Christ. We are handing on the flame of faith and the flame of faith is very, very delicate. If I were to sneeze holding a candle, it would go out. It needs that wax to feed it, just in the same way faith in the family requires families to, feed, to nurture yeah. faith. That's right. And that's part of the tradition of the church. That's how we take what that which we have received and hand it on. And then it goes on to trying to understand why our scriptures are sacred. What is the sense of inspiration and interpretation of the scriptures? Why do we hold them in veneration? And so it talks about the authors, it talks about the scholarship, and it talks about the sense, the fuller sense of understanding of scripture. And then it goes on to talk about the scripture in the life of the church. Now, I was in Bethlehem and St. Jerome did his work in Bethlehem. You can go down to the crypt where he worked. And one of the phrases from St. Jerome that I've always held on to is an ignorance of scripture is an ignorance of Christ himself. If we do not know our scriptures, then we do not know the person of Christ. We can go to Christ in prayer, yes, but it has to be fed by what we know and has been handed on to us in the tradition of the church through the sacred scriptures. And that God's word always leads to fulfillment because we discover the, the, the living Christ, a historical person, yes, through the scriptures, but living now through the power of the resurrection and in the spirit. Very good indeed. So that takes us on to Gaudium et Spes. Yes, joy and hope. The church in the modern world, mm. even though we're looking 60 years back. Well, this document was the last of the documents to be promulgated. And I suppose you could say that Gaudium et Spes is a response to Dei Verbum, Lumen Gentium and Sacrosanctum Concilium. That's my opinion. I, I, I'm, I'm very happy to be corrected on it. Because what we've done with the other three constitutions is to look at how the church has received what she believes how the church understands herself to be in the world and how the church celebrates that which she has believed. And now what it does is it takes it and says, right, how do we now engage with the world? And this takes us back to the opening speech of the council by Pope St. John XXIII, Gaudet Mater Ecclesia, where he called for that openness. I like to think of it as the church becoming both salt and light, the image from St. Matthew's Gospel, whereby we have to hold up a standard for goodness, a standard for holiness, a standard for how to be that perfection of the kingdom. But in order to do that, we have to be mixed in. 
We can't just be on the on pedestal. The and you know, you know, it's it's we've got to be mixed in wherever we are. Yeah. And so when you look at the church in the modern world, the constitution of the church in the modern world, it's the place of the church in the world. And so it begins with the human condition. It begins with what is it to be human? What does it mean to have a conscience? What does it mean to act in terms of our vocation as people? It talks about the dignity of humanity, the dignity of community. And having done all of this sort of preparatory work, it then talks about what were the urgent problems of the world. It talks about the dignity of marriage and family life. It talks about cultural progress, especially with education and inequality across the world. It talks about the socio-economic life and the dignity of human labour, which was then taken by Pope St John Paul II with a very little-known encyclical letter called Laborens Ezechens, which I think is a, is a remarkable piece of work, but it's not well known. And he talks about the dignity of human labour and how, through work, we actually increase our dignity. Gaudium Esmeralda talks about the political community. And remember that the council began on the wake of the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis. And so it talks about war and peace in the international community. It talks about how we are to work and be instruments of peace in the world. Perhaps a few parallels to now. Absolutely. And then ultimately, the church in the modern world is about how we build God's kingdom. How do we become effective co-workers with Christ in bringing the kingdom of God into the world itself? So what we've got here in these first four constitutions, I think, is, is a wonderful synergy of what it is to be a member of the church. How do we receive that revelation of God? How do we live it out as a baptised member of the church? How do we celebrate it in our liturgy? And then how do we go out into the world to proclaim the good news? Thank you very much for that. Excellent. Just for the sake of my appalling Latin, just give us a little translation of, the, of those titles. Sacrosanctum Concilium, you did mention. The, the Sacred Council. Lumen Gentium is the light of the people. Dei Verbum is the word of God. And Gaudium et Spes is joys and hopes. Because if you look at the first paragraph of Gaudium et Spes, what it does, it, it begins with the joy and hope, the sorrow and anxiety of the men of our time, especially of the poor and those who are in any way suffering, these Christ disciples make their own, and there is nothing human that does not find an echo in their hearts. Fantastic. Thank you. Well, I hope that's made us all a bit more enthusiastic to look at these documents once more, renewed, as we will in 2023, which is synod year, isn't it? We, it is, yes. We, we've said much whole, about that. And the whole, as I've said before on these podcasts, the whole of the synodality uh, process comes out of Lumen Gentium with an understanding and a, and a deepening of the understanding of the people of God in relation with that hierarchical nature of the church in chapter three. Absolutely. Now, I'm not letting you go just yet because we will have a scriptural reflection in just a moment. But just to trail ahead a little bit, a little later on on this podcast, we'll sort of eject ourselves a little bit from our, our London southeast bubble that we can get rather stuck in and speak to the director of Caritas Salford. Uh, that's Patrick O'Dowd. We're going to find out a bit more about the challenges that uh, Caritas Salford are facing, that the people are facing in the northwest with regard to the cost of living crisis that is really afflicting all of us right now and how they're helping people um, in this very much in their time of need. So we'll be speaking to Patrick a little bit later on, but you've promised us a scriptural reflection, Father Chris. Yes. And, and when we look at the gospel for last Sunday, we've got the tax collector and the Pharisee. And what this tells us, to my mind, is very important, is the fact that the Pharisee prays to himself. Jesus says this in the gospel. So actually, he's not touching God at all. He's not opening his heart to God in any way or form. Whereas the tax collector beats his breast and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
And it's that under self-understanding that begins this process of prayer. I think that one of the nicest images I, I, I know of prayer is from St. John of the Cross about a man who ascends a ladder over a pool of water. And the more you ascend the ladder going up towards God, the deeper you go in your reflection to, of yourself. So it becomes a deeper understanding of self as well as a touching of God. That's very much how we engage with God in our own prayer. But there's also the sense of, of we've talked about sacrosanctum and children and our corporate prayer together. We have that wonderful image of uh, Moses sat on the mountaintop with the Amalekites and uh, the Israelites are in battle. And when Moses' arms are raised high, as a priest will do during the liturgy, you know, the priest will open his arms and raise them high, the Israelites became victorious. But when his arms got a bit heavy and began to drop, the Amalekites began to win. So Aaron and Hur popped him down on a stone and, and held his arms up and they won the battle. And that, for me, is an image of, of the church. In uh, the cathedral in Nottingham that you went into when I was a curate there, before the lunchtime mass each day, people would pray the rosary. And some people would go in and say, oh, you know, it's like a drone of bees in there, you know, with people praying the rosary, you know, uh, in a very quick manner. But I always used to say to them, it's a sign of the church at prayer. And we need these signs. We need to be seen as a praying community. And that combination of the individual personal prayer fed by the word of God, De Verbum again, fed by an understanding of the scriptures, fed by God speaking to us off the page. We come to understand the person of Jesus more intimately in our lives. It has to begin with a sense of humility. We go to God knowing our need. And that's why I think the most sublime interpretation of prayer, the definition, is not the one in the catechism, I'm afraid, is actually the motto of our St. John Henry Newman, heart speaking to heart. We've got to slow down so that our heartbeat sort of echoes the heartbeat of God. And when we're in that position, we're open to listening. We're open to being touched by prayer. It's very important that we do it as a community, corporately, on a Sunday, because when we gather on a Sunday, we do it for, for many reasons. The first is that we worship God together. The second, we support each other as we pray together in the community. And the third, which I think is important, is being that sign, being the Moses on the hill with our arms in the air, a sign to the world that this is important to us. That's OK, but it also needs the other side. It needs us going into our room and slowing our heartbeat down so we can spend time with God. And that's what these readings are talking about. We go to God in our prayer so that we praise him for who he is, for the goodness that he's done in our lives, with our petitions, and we come away from it changed so that we become better missioners in the world of today. Oh, that's beautiful and encouraging to slow down. We all chase our tail a bit, don't we, these days? Absolutely. It's always always trying to fit it in is always the, yeah. the issue. But I love that, slowing down to match the heartbeat of the church. Wonderful. Canon Chris, thank you very much indeed. I do hope you will join us next month. Is it a busy month? Yes, obviously. Um, we're, we're beginning now to turn our minds towards uh, November, which means it's the month of another plenary meeting. Yes. Uh, so so we're looking at that. So the bishops will gather in Leeds in November for their, their autumn plenary assembly. And uh, there are lots of other small things on the table, but the most important of which will be the document for the continental phase of the Synod and how oh, yes. we're going to make a response to that. So let's see how we get on with that and maybe we can talk about that next time. And talking about the bishops in plenary, we have a new bishop. We do. Let's talk Welsh canons, Absolutely. shall we? 
Tell us a bit about our new bishop. Canon Peter Collins is a wonderful man. I I actually spent last Christmas working with him Ah. uh, in the Church of Our Lady of the Angels in Canton in Cardiff. And uh, his hospitality was was magnificent. He's a very experienced priest, a very wise man. He will bring a huge amount of talent to the Diocese of East Anglia. He'll bring his Welsh Hoyle, being a good Welshman, as as born in, in Tredega and brought up in Rumley. But he's also a very prayerful man, a man who, who, you know, is rooted in spirituality. So I think the people of East Anglia and the priests and the religious and the deacons will be very blessed by his presence. So his ordination will take place on the 14th of December, which I believe is the Feast of St. John of the Cross, which is good for uh, a man who was trained in Valladolid in Spain. So uh, uh, let's hope that uh, the inspiration and the prayers of all those Spanish mystics will be with uh, Bishop Elect Peter as he comes to his ordination. Very well said. And perhaps we should doff our cap and and say a prayer for Bishop Alan Hopes, the outgoing Bishop of East Anglia. Absolutely. Who deserves a great retirement. And I hope that Mm. uh, that he he will be able to lay down the crozier knowing that he has been a good and faithful servant. Ad multos anos, I suppose, if we're going to hit our Latin. Very much so. Canon Chris, thank you very much. At the Foot of the Cross, a monthly podcast from the Catholic Bishops' Conference of England and Wales. So I did promise you listeners that we'd talk about the stark situation up and down the country, the cost of living crisis. And we quite often get stuck in our, our little southeast centric bubble down here in London. And um, I really wanted us to access the, the bigger picture. So I'm very pleased to say that I'm joined by Patrick O'Dowd, who's the director of Caritas Salford in the northwest of England. Patrick, how are you? I'm great. Thanks, James. And thanks very much for the opportunity to spend a little bit of time with you today talking about some of our work up here in Greater Manchester and Lancashire. I'm very grateful. No, no, us too. So so why don't we start there? You mentioned the area. You know, there are many people, all you know, north, south, east, west, that are very alarmed at the moment. They're worried about those those energy bills, of course, but also the cost of food and essentials. Nothing is cheap anymore for, for all of us. Can you just paint a bit of a picture of this crisis for us, for, for families and people in your area? Yeah, sure. So at the moment, um, we're certainly experiencing a significant increase in demand for food, basic material support, debt advice, and people coming forward with financial concerns. Oftentimes, then that's linked to added concern about their own mental health and anxiety, that the pressures that they're facing. On the ground, I think we're still dealing with the pre-pandemic context and the circumstances that existed even before the pandemic with some of our local authority areas in Greater Manchester and Lancashire already the most deprived neighbourhoods in England. And we have an increasing waiting lists and health concerns for people. We see the isolation of older people during the pandemic. That continues, actually, and there's some kind of chronic issues that are there. But as I mentioned, the increased demand you've already highlighted um, in work hour work in pulling together some research for from the University of Loughborough that highlighted that about 228,000 children we believe living in Salford Diocese are living in poverty and that's as high as about 42% of children in, in Manchester, one of the obviously biggest, most populated areas in the city. There's about 40% of those households that are actually living in poverty, considered to be living in poverty, where there's at least one person working, which I think is quite a significant figure in itself. That's astounding, isn't it? Yes, it's, it's really tragic considering people are working and yet they don't have enough income to be able to support themselves or their families. Because they're trying to get out of it, aren't they? That's the thing. They're, it's not like there's an awful lot more they can do. They're, they're sort of locked in this, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I spent a lot of time 
over the past few weeks traveling around the diocese to different parts listening to people and i've heard directly how people have come forward to talk about how they would like to stay in our day centers or our places to be able to stay warm for longer how they've asked about how they can use some shower facilities because they can't afford to use the heating or the electric to heat the water to take a shower at home we've supported people in the town of Berry recently with some debt advice with a gentleman who got into arrears with his utilities at home and, and he'd been switched to a prepay meter and every time he tops up that meter there's a deduction made from the prepay amount which means that actually every week is short of gas and electricity to heat his home. And some of that's awareness isn't it some people might not know that prepaid customers are, are facing that are you finding a lot of those very sort of it might be a, a particular case but that could extend to an awful lot of people that might not know that. Yes, yeah, quite a significant amount of uh, lack of knowledge out there. And also it's about an awareness of the system of how things work. I had a gentleman come forward a little while ago now who English wasn't his first language. He'd been supported by Caritas in one of our homelessness projects. He was, as it were, a success story where we'd found accommodation for him. But the utility card that tops up his, his gas and electric for the house had broken. And it's quite complicated, as I discovered within one Friday afternoon, of trying to navigate the way of getting a replacement code from the relevant website and the telephone number that you need in order to do that. And if you're, if English isn't your first language or you don't have access to the internet to find out the telephone numbers, it can be quite complicated to navigate the system. And I think most importantly for us as an agency, being there with people, accompanying them, entering into a relationship with them for the long term, support them is really important. And certainly the experience that we're finding on the ground is that there's a lot of challenge out there and, and real deprivation as a result of the cost of living crisis. A lot of people, I've heard it quite a lot, and it's sort of, uh, it's obviously a phrase that sticks with you, but it's that, you know, it's a choice of heating or eating. Is it, is it as stark as that? I think tragically it is as, uh, as stark as that. We had a gentleman last week who came forward to one of our services. He is experiencing some ill health. He has been to the doctor and was prescribed a fortifying medicine to be able to assist him because of rapid weight loss. To access that, though, he needed to have milk to top up, to mix with that. He couldn't afford the milk. Now, thankfully, the teams on the ground were able to go back to the GP and advise the doctors who changed the prescription. But that was a simple case of not being able to access the medication that he desperately needed because he didn't have sufficient funds to be able to buy milk. So it really is as stark as that. And these stories are genuine circumstances that people in our areas are facing. And it's a question of literally, you know, can I afford to keep the heating on or can I afford to feed my family you know, in the circumstances that I'm facing? And it really is stark, that 42% you said in Manchester. And of course, areas like Bolton and Blackburn, Oldham, Rochdale, again, approaching 40% of children living in poverty. And you're an area, I must say, though, where there's a lot of kind-hearted, decent people who have taken in refugees in the past and have been at the forefront of a, of a response to other people in hardship. Do they now feel that, that you know, they need a bit of help too? I think people, are, you know, across the board are experiencing challenges. There's no doubt about that with the increased inflationary pressures. If you look at Blackburn and Burnley, for example, a study has just been published uh, late July about the disproportionate impact of inflationary costs on communities there, and particularly those that are on low incomes. They point to two particular issues that could help to resolve that, one of them being around improving the quality of the accommodation and insulation in the homes, and also around improving transport, because they're two of the costs 
that um, people are facing most, increased cost of utilities, and then obviously a cost because of inflated petrol prices. So if someone does have access to a car or they need to go and get their weekly shop from a supermarket and access taxis, then obviously those costs obviously come out of your weekly outgoings and, and create a significant impact for you. Across the board, we are experiencing challenges. And actually, as a charity too, we're experiencing that challenge. So our day centres, you know, we are under pressure in terms of our own utility expenditure, or our own outgoings that we need to ensure we've got the relevant resources to provide support with. We too, as an agency, are feeling the pressure as that, as I'm sure other Catholic social action agencies, other Caritas agencies across England and Wales are too, and on all different aspects of the support networks that are there to help people that are most in need. Yeah, absolutely. It does beg the question, what is Caritas Salford and its partners doing to to help the wider Catholic Church as well? And I was interested when you were sort of feeding back on a couple of those um, things like I saw, you know, churches or or centres being beacons of warmth for people. I mean, we we can provide these things. And then interestingly, you said, well, yeah, but those, those bills are going up too. So, you know, we have to find that money as well in order to pay those bills in order to help heat these places to help people stay warm so g- give us a little bit of a flavor of what what you feel you are able to do caritas Solvit. sure thank you so obviously our costs are, are going up but we're really proud of the fact that we've launched a thing called the caritas bishops fund it's been operating for a few years now but actually received some additional input support through the diocese of salford and through other benefactors who've helped us build up this crisis support fund really for families and people in acute need across our area people are able to make bids applications to that they're reviewed very quickly and support can be offered through parishes through schools to provide really basic material support needs for that and we're seeing increased number of referrals to that fund as well i think secondly as an organization we're building up capacity as far as we can to improve signposting i think we realize that we don't have the ability to do everything and respond to every particular need. And there's already an extraordinary amount of work taking place across the communities. And you highlighted just a few of the areas that Solver Diocese cover a few minutes ago. I think there's there's an incredible amount of goodwill out there amongst people in voluntary organisations. And and it's important for us to build up an important map and signposting ability to point to local authorities, for example, because many of them have really taken up the mantle of providing as much support as they can agencies that might give debt advice, perhaps, or or mental health services. I think the other thing to say is that certainly nowadays we have have an extraordinary relationship with other Catholic partners. So the SVP being a prime example of that, with other Caritas agencies that are in neighbouring dioceses as well, and charities like Out There who operate from Trafford and local authority working with the families of prisoners. So there's a really strong network across the Catholic charities and parishes and schools community in our diocese. And I think our role really, as far as we can, is to try and animate that and where we can provide support and assistance is to perhaps signpost out to other agencies who can. Trying to work with parishes as well to sort of animate their own local social action, help them create safe projects to support people or engage with other interfaith or other Christian churches and express our Catholic faith in those different communities as well. And, and we're trying to build up our capacity to do that too. And I think obviously we're, we're better off together, aren't we? I mean, I've noticed on, on you're using your social media to appeal for clothes or, or to sort of talk about accommodation, even sponsoring rooms for, for young parents. And it, it, the, the eternal one, food banks, which I'm sure are under in, incredible pressure right now. But lots, you know, many parishes are either linked to one or, or help facilitate a food bank. 
So that's great to see. I'm just wondering, I think you mentioned Centre for Cities, which I, I know little about, so maybe you could say a word about that. I mean, what sort of interface do you have or what work are you able to do with the local authorities? So over the course of the past few years, and perhaps accelerated as a result of the pandemic, we've really reached out quite quite well with lots of local authorities across the whole of the area. And there is a really dedicated group of people in those local authorities working very hard to support people who are in need. It's about us being able to partner and engage with them as much as we can. Referring back to that report you, you pointed to a second ago, and I mentioned, I think, earlier, the Centre for Cities, it, it gives a really stark impression about some of the challenges that people in towns like Blackburn and Burnley face as a result of the disproportionate impact of uh, inflation and the cost of living pressures in those towns. Actually, it says in that report that one of the worst towns is actually in Blackpool. So that's not technically on sulfur dioxide patch locally speaking. And I don't know too much about that town per se, but um, in Blackburn and Burnley, there's about 11% increased level of inflation in that town compared to some areas in the south of England. And some of the reasons for that are because of poorer quality housing in those areas, ineffective public transport, which means you've got additional costs to support you know, bringing up your family in those areas that you might not have if you're not living in them. So there are some serious areas that we need to grapple with locally and support and, and be, again, advocates for change with those local authorities there, talking to them about where we think investment needs to go in to support people lifting out of poverty and ending that permanently for them. Well, I mean, it's, it's good to hear how hard you're working. I think my final question would be, as it often is, and we do ask an awful lot of our Catholic parishioners in the pews, I must say, but what, what would your message be to them, whether they want to help or whether they need help? You know, there's a cross-section of all sorts. Of, many people find themselves in, in many different situations. But what would you say to Catholics in our pews about the cost of living crisis? I think if people are experiencing an impact themselves personally, then it's really important they do talk about that and reach out for support is the first step. Really, really important, whether it be to your local Catholic community, whether it be to the local authority support services and not to, to wait or delay, because I think that just might store up other problems further down the line. I think what I would really encourage people to do, if they're able to do so, is to consider volunteering, whether it be for their local Caritas agency or any one of the other Catholic social action charities that operate across England and Wales, that we've got a really rich tapestry of different agencies in our country. And I think it's really important that people, if they, they're able to do so, come forward to kind of grow that volunteering body across all the different agencies. And I think also to work with people like ourselves to kind of advocate and campaign for people who are experiencing some of these really challenging situations with poverty and advocate, whether it be a local level or encourage and join up with national campaigns there to you know, encourage government and those in political authority to look towards protecting the integrity and upholding the dignity of the human person, which is integral to us, and also to thinking about and protecting the common good, which I think, you know, again, is integral to us as Catholic social agencies and as people of faith in our community, it's really important to do as well. So I encourage people to think about that. I suppose I should get in there and ask, from a fundraising point of view, it'd be negligent of me not to do that. <laughs> um, obviously, as well, as agencies, all Catholic social action agencies, I'm sure, would welcome people who would like to support, whether it be through practical donations, you mentioned our appeal at the moment, or for financial donations, particularly as we go into the winter, as people will really feel the biting pressures of the impact of these significant matters that we're all facing. 
perhaps if they have sufficient funds, if they're able to make a donation, I think that we're really welcome to. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I particularly like your act now message, because I think when people are under pressure, I think back to the times I've been under pressure, you just, you know, you, I wouldn't say you hope it goes away, but you, you sit on it too long, don't you? And you, and you feel the heat and it, it doesn't get any cooler. It just gets hotter. So it's definitely better to just deal with this and, and take the advice. You, you mentioned at the start of this piece about, you know, some of those financial debt advice places that they're, they're definitely well worth looking at. So things just don't spiral and get out of control. So I, I certainly appreciate that. And Patrick, thank you so much for giving us the, the local picture up in Salford. Really grateful to get that. And um, obviously you're in our prayers. I mean, and for those that, that maybe can't support financially, we'd, we'd appreciate prayers for your work. I'm sure you would too. Absolutely. Yes, certainly. Please keep us in your prayers. Patrick O'Dowd from Caritas Salford. Thanks so much indeed. Thank you. Excellent stuff. Thanks very much, Patrick. Patrick O'Dowd there from Caritas Salford, explaining what people are facing in his region in the northwest, and of course, what church organisations are doing to ease the burden as best they can. Now, we'll finish today by hearing from one of our bishops, don't we every month, thankfully? Today, it's the turn of Bishop Patrick McKinney. Bishop Patrick is the Bishop of Nottingham and also our lead bishop for interreligious dialogue here at the Bishop's Conference. This month, he played host to a really interesting meeting that I was lucky enough to attend of our diocesan interreligious dialogue coordinators. Now, during a break in proceedings, I had the chance to invite Bishop Patrick to give us a little reflection on the importance of dialogue with people of other faiths. In so many areas now of England and Wales, Catholics are living and working alongside many followers of other religions. They're often now our neighbours, aren't they? Our colleagues at work. Indeed, mosques, gurdwaras, temples are a familiar sight in our towns and cities alongside our churches and synagogues. We live in a multicultural, multi-faith society. When Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And then he said, you must love your neighbor as yourself. We know we cannot love God without loving our neighbor. They are two sides of the one coin. That very open and positive attitude of the Catholic Church towards people and communities belonging to other religions is very much based on the conviction that the human race is one. Every human being is made in the image and likeness of God, our Creator. And therefore everyone has an equal dignity as persons with the rights and the duties that flow from this. As Pope St. John Paul II said, there is only one divine will for every human being who comes into our world, one single origin and one goal. So as Catholics, we are asked to bear witness to our love of God by showing respect and care and by engaging in dialogue with our neighbours, whoever they are. And especially when our neighbours of other religions are the object of intolerance or prejudice, Sometimes this may mean we have to honestly acknowledge and face up to negative attitudes within ourselves as well as in others. The church encourages all of us in our daily lives, at work and in our neighborhoods to take the first step in reaching out to people of other religions. Why? 
Because as people get to know each other, prejudices and fears can begin to melt away. Better understanding of each other can develop and friendships can be formed. This living side by side at work and in our neighborhoods provides all of us with many, many opportunities for interreligious dialogue. That phrase, interreligious dialogue, I know can put many, many people off because they tend to think that's only for the specialists. So let me explain what's meant here by dialogue. Dialogue is a manner of acting towards the other person. It's an attitude of respect and openness, an awareness that the Holy Spirit is mysteriously present in every human heart. It's important too that we know the Catholic Church speaks of four distinct but interrelated kinds of interreligious dialogue. The first is dialogue of life, where people get to know each other as neighbors at work on the bus or the train or in everyday encounters, sharing their joys and sorrows or perhaps a shared passion for sport. This is the basis for everything else. All interreligious dialogue is founded on friendship and trust, just like all human relationships. That's the first. The second is the dialogue of action, where people of different religions work together for the common good. For example, in organizing a response to homelessness or indeed the cost of living crisis. Inspired very often by their own scriptures or religious tradition, people from different religions agree we will work together in common cause. The third is dialogue of religious experience. This is where people come together to share maybe how they pray or what God means to them or how God inspires the way they try to live and so on. And only fourthly, is there the dialogue theological exchange. Here's where specialists, scholars and theologians gather to grow in deeper appreciation of each other's religions and spiritual values while respecting, of course, and acknowledging differences. Interreligious dialogue is very much an important aspect of the church's mission of evangelization. True interreligious dialogue on the part of a Catholic presupposes, of course, the desire to make Christ Jesus better known and understood. That's our duty as Christians. But we are called to do this always in the spirit of dialogue with the other person. So this involves an openness to listen and to learn, to respect the presence of the Holy Spirit mysteriously at work in every human heart, and to work together with them for the good of society and indeed peace in our world. This desire of fraternity that Pope Francis speaks of so often for respect for good working relationships amongst people is such an important aspect of why interreligious dialogue is so important for us as Catholics. Thanks very much, Bishop Patrick McKinney, our lead bishop, for interreligious dialogue.
So that's it for October's At the Foot of the Cross, sneaking in a little bit late there towards the end of the month. Thank you so much for listening. Very grateful. November, of course, is the month we pray for and remember those who have died in our parishes. So by the time that we're together again, we'll have had those great feasts of all saints and all souls. So do please remember in your prayers all those on our November lists. I'm very much looking forward to your company next month. Stay safe and I'll speak to you then. Bye for now.